Well, there's probably never been a case when a physician had so much direct influence on American politics and when we don't exactly know what that influence was. Here's what happened. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Quote, too many Americans are indifferent to their own history and know too little about it. This ignorance makes the present more baffling than it needs to be. Unquote. That from a Washington Post review of today's book is the perfect start for today's episode. If you think the current political atmosphere Divisiveness and the daily onslaught of negative news is unprecedented in American history. Consider the period between 1917 and 1921, a period many of us have forgotten about, but a time that included the First World War, widespread suppression of speech in the press, mass imprisonment, horrifying lynchings of black Americans, including even black veterans, labor strikes, and yes, even the Spanish flu pandemic. Our guide through this tumultuous period and today's guest is journalist, historian, and professor Adam Hochschild. Adam is the author of 11 books, including his most recent, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. It's a fantastic and well-researched book that delivers some much-needed context and perspective, as many of us are trying to make sense of our own times. We really enjoyed having Adam with us. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. With that said, let's get started. Adam, welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you this afternoon. Thank you, Colin. Good to be with you. Keith and I were talking last night. We both agreed we enjoyed your book. But it's also a difficult book to read in many ways because there's a lot of a lot of tough subjects in here. We're going to talk at length about that. But since we are, uh, we go off track sometimes. But we are still a medical podcast. Let's let's start with this guy, Doctor Grayson. Talk, let's talk about President Wilson's health. Who was this guy? And 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 we'll talk about his decline in health. What was what was happening there? Well, there's probably never been a case when a physician had so much direct influence on American politics. And when we don't exactly know what that influence was, here's what happened. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, <clears throat> president from 1913 to 1921, uh, in 1919 had a series of strokes, uh, the last of which was quite severe and basically knocked him out of commission for you know, most of the rest of his presidency uh, for, you know, some weeks after getting a, having a stroke, he couldn't get out of bed. Uh, he could barely talk uh, and he could certainly not function as president. A triumvirate quickly formed around him, his second wife, Edith, uh, his, uh, what we would today call chief of staff, then called secretary, uh, Joe Tumulty, a New Jersey uh, veteran of New Jersey machine politics, and his physician, Dr. Carrie Grayson, who was a Navy admiral, and who had grown increasingly closer to Wilson over uh, the last few years, had actually introduced Wilson 
to his second wife, Edith, after Wilson's first wife died not long after he came into the White House. So Grayson was a very close friend. Um, and uh, even before Wilson had his stroke, Grayson was always at his side, watched his diet, what he ate every day, sort of guarded him or tried to guard him from the influenza epidemic that was then sweeping the world, not successfully, but when Wilson did fall in ill with influenza, Grayson denied to the press that's what he had and said he was just sick with a cold. Uh, and even before Wilson had his strokes, he increasingly turned to Grayson, sometimes to brief reporters on matters of policy. Uh, Wilson was a peculiar guy who often had fallings out with people close to him. And he had a falling out with a man who had previously been his closest advisor, Colonel Edward House. And this Navy physician, uh, Dr. Carrie Grayson, sort of took his place. So when Wilson was attending the peace conference in Paris that was uh, drafting the peace settlement that ended World War I, Dr. Grayson would sometimes be the one he sent to brief reporters. And then after he came back to the United States uh, <clears throat> and suffered this stroke, Wilson, Mrs. Wilson, and uh, Joe Tumulty, the personal secretary, were a triumvirate who were basically making decisions in the White House for some months, deciding what material would be shown to Wilson, what would not be shown to him. But we really don't know exactly how they functioned as a trio and exactly what decisions they made or did not make or what material they kept from Wilson, what they showed him. We just know that they filled the vacuum that existed in the White House in late 1919 and for much of 1920. It's, it's interesting. Um, obviously, Grayson was a really good doctor, I mean, for his time, um, just commenting on the fact that he got um, uh, Wilson through an incredibly, incredibly serious stroke and with some recovery. I mean, Wilson lived for a while after that. Um, and also through the flu, which was deadly. Um, I, I think one of my questions uh, that I would have is having reviewed what uh, Wilson was like coming into the stroke and then after the stroke, where Wilson really was a hands-off president anyway, do you think that it made a big difference that they were that they were running the White House at that point? Do you think anything would have been different in terms of the other material in your book? You know, that's a good question, Keith, and I don't really know the answer. Wilson was a hands-off president in one sense, in that for the last couple of years of his presidency, his mind was filled with his great obsession, which was creating the League of Nations uh, that would solve the problem of war forever afterwards in human history, and that the United States would be the center of this new uh, uh, organization. This was what he was increasingly obsessed with. And he didn't pay a lot of detailed attention to what other things his administration was doing, although he clearly knew about it because he had cabinet meetings once or twice a week and people briefed him on what they were doing up to the point when he had his stroke in the fall of, of, of 1919. So how things would have been different otherwise had he not had the stroke. 
it's hard to tell. I rather suspect they wouldn't have been that different because I think he knew basically about the enormous amount of political repression that was then going on in the United States. He virtually called for it. He okayed it up to the point where he had his stroke. Um, whether he would have had qualms when, you know, some 10,000 people were arrested in the Palmer raids uh, of late 1919 and early 1920, when Attorney General Mitchell Palmer was scheming to win the presidency in 1920 as a law and order candidate by deporting large numbers of people from the country, whether that would have dismayed Wilson if he'd realized how extensive these raids were, we don't know. But the evidence sort of suggests that he knew something like the raids were in the making. Yeah, it's interesting. So we, I think it was last year we had Jeffrey Coleman on. So he was the chief White House, chief of the White House medical unit. So he was President Bush and President Obama's doctor. And we talked a little bit afterwards. You know, he doesn't agree to a lot of interviews. And traditionally, these guys were pretty quiet. Um, they did their, their job and didn't interact with the press very much. And he lamented some of the, his successors who have done just the opposite, doing press conferences and, and granting interviews. But in a lot of ways, he's still, he is a physician. And he has to examine the patient just like any other physician would have to do, taking notes. Did you see, I know there's still a lot of mystery about this, but did Grayson keep detailed notes or exam notes or anything that, you know, we'd be able to look at today? Not that survives. Uh, no, he wrote a book many years later, and the line that he took and Mrs. Wilson took and Joe Tumulty took uh, that's triumphant was that uh, Wilson's stroke hadn't really uh, disabled him and he was still making decisions and he was still governing the country wisely and well, you know, even though he had suffered a stroke. But all the ev other evidence is that that was not true. We have uh, eyewitness accounts, for example, from several cabinet members who attended the first cabinet meeting after Wilson had his stroke, which didn't happen until, boy, I'm a little hazy on the date, until I think it was about five months later. Amazing. And at that meeting, according to the cabinet members who was there, Wilson could speak, but he took no initiative. He didn't run the meeting. He waited for cabinet members to say what was on their mind. And as they entered the room, he was sitting behind his desk, didn't get up, and had the chief White House usher, which is sort of the chief of the domestic staff at the, at the White House, announce each cabinet member when they entered the room, as if Wilson might have forgotten who they were. And his recorded comments during that meeting are very brief and cryptic. And cabinet members actually got into a furious argument in which Wilson apparently paid, played no part. So I think he was really pretty much out of commission. So we're going to go into the suppression of freedom of speech in the press quite a bit here because you cover it in your book. But I would imagine if this happened today, um, as we're recording here, uh, President Biden is, is in office. If he suffered a stroke and they were covering it up, this would be the biggest bombshell for any reporter <laughs> who broke the story. I, I, I imagine things were different then. Did they have a normal press pool, White House press pool then? 
And did, did anybody take a chance at that that you were able to find? Like, hey, you guys have no idea what's going on. This is some information leaked out, uh, but it they were keeping things amazingly secret for many weeks. Uh, they did not say that President Wilson had suffered a stroke. And, and it was a severe stroke. He was found unconscious on the floor of his bathroom uh, at the White House after having had several smaller strokes earlier. Uh, they didn't say. They just said he was indisposed and uh, there were various euphemisms that were used uh, uh, you know, nervous exhaustion, things like that. There are an awful lot of medical euphemisms flying around uh, 100 years ago. Uh, nervous exhaustion is one that I re uh, remember. It was only some weeks later when one of his doctors, you know, Grayson assembled a team of all proper specialists to examine one of his doctors, a urologist, when questioned by the press, uh, somehow or other, uh, uh, slipped the bounds and mentioned that Wilson had had a stroke, something that many people... He didn't, didn't get the talking points memo. <laughs> no, he didn't. Uh, but reporters were a little more protective of presidential privacy and the privacy of politicians than they've become since then. And it's, um, it's sort of eerie to look at how things were reported in the initial days before the really serious stroke. There was another one he had suffered when he was completing an exhausting month-long uh, tour of the United States by train, giving speeches promoting the League of Nations. And, and giving speeches in those days meant shouting because there were no public address systems. Uh, he suffered a, a stroke on the train and said, we have to cancel the rest of the trip. I can't go on. And the reporter was a carload of reporters on the train, and they struggled to find explanations for when, when it was announced that President Wilson was tired, nervous exhaustion or whatever, and uh, couldn't continue the trip. They struggled to find explanations and the reporter for the New York Times wrote something about it's believed that when listening to some extra loud music in San Francisco uh, this uh, uh, riled up the president's nervous system in some way and he just needs to seek some rest so they weren't as nosy as people would be today amazing I'm gonna read a quote here this is from Milan Kundera I think if I'm saying his last name correct um, quote, the struggle of man against power uh, is the struggle of memory against forgetting, unquote. And I thought about this quote as I was reading your book, because I felt like I knew a fair amount of, about this period of time, but I realized I didn't, or I'd forgotten many of these, you know, at some point in the interview here, we're going to talk about the very last moments of the war and how many people died after the armistice was already um, announced. I mean, it's just things like that you just forget, and they're shocking to see again. I, I also read in your acknowledgments, you kind of, I would say, beta tested some of the ideas in different lectures, um, an Atlantic uh, uh, article, uh, a couple others. When you're choosing a project like this, how do you assess the, the memory of the public and look for opportunities like this? Because I think you hit it. I think this is something many of us have forgotten about, but clearly should know a lot more about. How do you approach this and and I mean, take, I'm just curious, take us through your process. Yeah. Well, the kinds of the, the pieces of history that I enjoy writing about are those that 
I think have been unduly forgotten. You know, there are certain very popular periods of history. Uh, the greatest generation that won World War II, uh, the Civil War, the tragedy of the Blue and the Gray, the Founding Fathers. You know, probably half or two-thirds of widely selling history books are on one of those three topics. Well, let me tell you, you will never catch me writing a book about the Founding Fathers. Uh, or a biography of Abraham Lincoln, huh? <laughs> or a biography adding to the whatever it is, success <laughs> biographies of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I don't think I could find anything new to say on any of those subjects, uh, even if I were to take a contrarian point of view. Uh, so I'm attracted to times and places that I feel are not well known. And what attracted me here was that the more I learned about this period, the more I learned that the years 1917 and 1921 were really the greatest assault on civil liberties in the United States that had happened since the immediate aftermath of slavery. There's been nothing comparable. We think of the McCarthy years as a repressive period, and they were, but in terms of number of people sent to jail, uh, newspapers and magazines prevented from publishing and so on, it was nothing compared to this 1917 to 21 period. And it's a period that often gets skipped over. In my high school American history book, for instance, I remember there was a chapter on the First World War with <clears throat> pictures of the doughboys going off to Europe in their forest ranger uh, broad-brimmed hats, uh, description of the battles they fought and the ticker tape parades that greeted them when they came home. And then that was the end of that chapter. And then you turn the page and the next chapter begins and boom, it's the 1920s and the issues are prohibition, speakeasies, rise of Babe Ruth, the coming of talkie movies and so forth. And this very nasty period of repression from 1917 to 21 gets skipped over. So that's what I wanted to zero in on. Did you find there was a problem with sources? Because clearly all this was clandestine. I mean, uh, although it wasn't actually, they they were proud of it. But when you when you started researching it, did you say you just couldn't really find the material at first to to fill in those gaps, or was it there and people just aren't looking at it? No, the material is there and people aren't looking at it. I don't mean nobody's looking at it because there's some very fine specialist historians who have written about different aspects of this period or who have written you know biographies of some of the people who were repressed during that time, like Eugene Debs and Emma Goldman, who I wrote about. Some excellent historians who've dealt with that. But because it's such an inglorious time in American history, it just doesn't make its way into the standard textbooks that much. So I found no shortage of source materials at all. Um, first of all, you know, the repression took place in court, uh, you know, and just to, to detail what some of it was, uh, there were roughly a thousand Americans who were sent to prison for a year or more during this period, and a much larger number for shorter periods of time, solely for things that they wrote or said. And every one of those things was a court case. And sometimes we've got a verbatim transcript of what was said uh, during a trial. Uh, other times we have, you know, reporters from the press, you know, reporting what was said in the courtroom. So there's plenty of data. 
there are also, as I say, biographies and autobiographies. Uh, I always prefer the autobiographies in a way because you have somebody writing in their own words what he or she experienced in that period. Emma Goldman's memoirs, for example. And then, of course, another rich, rich source of material, which I loved using, is this, that normally the surveillance records of government agencies that spy on us are kept secret. But after 60 or 100 years, all that stuff is open to the records. Uh, and uh, so the records of the Bureau of Investigation, predecessor of the FBI, it merely added the word federal to its name some years later. Uh, there are millions of pages of its undercover agents reporting on people that they were surveilling. Similarly, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages from U.S. military intelligence, which was spying not on the Germans in Europe, but on American civilians at home. So I had plenty of source material, and it was a great pleasure to, to put it to use. By chance, did you encounter anything that still was classified that you had to make a request for? Uh, I didn't. When a hundred years have passed, that's not the kind of thing you, you, you run into. If you're, you know, if it's uh, 40 or 50 years in the past, yes, then you do have to file Freedom of Information Act requests. But the Freedom of Information Act, Freedom of Information Act works, albeit slowly and imperfectly. And one thing that got in, got me interested in the whole business of surveillance reports was this. During the 1960s and early 70s, I was very active in the movement against the Vietnam War. And when they f finally passed the Freedom of Information Act uh, in the late 70s, I used it to uh, ask for the surveillance records of me by the FBI and military intelligence. And I got them. You know, the names of particular informants were blacked out, although sometimes you can figure out who they are. Huh, but really? I'm proud to say that, you know, I had a file that totaled more than 100 pages. And I was actually very small potatoes in the anti-war movement. I was very young. There were a vast number of people who were far more important than me and whose files, I'm sure, were vastly bigger. But ever since then, I've been fascinated by surveillance reports, and I've been able to dig into them for several different books I've written, um, because they often tell you as much about the watcher as about the watched person. Yeah, I had that on my list to ask you about that. Was there anything particularly surprising when you went through that? I mean, maybe just give us a flavor of what, what these reports look like. Well, um, I think the most interesting case was somebody I made into a character in my book, um, usually you don't know who these undercover agents are because they just use code numbers or whatever. But a very smart historian, uh, uh, Charles H. McCormick, uh, some 30 or 40 years ago, wrote a book uh, about radicals in Pittsburgh during this period. And in looking at this data, he noticed that one very prolific undercover agent of the Bureau of Investigation, Agent 836, actually on the first few reports that he wrote during this era, signed his actual name to the reports, Leo huh. Wendell. So it's one of these rare cases where we know the identity of somebody who was an undercover agent. And it's a fascinating story because 
here's what happened. In uh, mid-1917, Pittsburgh, then a huge industrial center of the steel industry and so forth, um, was also a city that tended to vote for the left in local elections. Uh, and the Justice Department was really worried about potential organizing there by the country's most militant uh, labor union, the Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies, as they were called, the IWW. So they sent an un undercover man to Pittsburgh to infiltrate this group. He was so good at what he did that some weeks later, he was elected secretary of the local Wobbly branch. <laughs> And for the next three or four years, he found himself leading marches and demonstrations, giving speeches, going to meetings all the time, filing three or four reports a week with the Justice Department. He's so prolific in these reports that I actually wondered, was he paid by the report? I don't know. <laughs> uh, to maintain his credibility, the federal government several times conspicuously arrested him and announced to the newspapers, we've seized a dangerous kingpin of the Wobblies and there'll be no more trouble from him. And somehow his associates never seemed to be surprised that he was always released from jail a couple of days later and back again, leading meetings and so forth. So I looked at the reports he wrote and I looked at how the newspapers reported about him as a dangerous Wobbly. The daily press, I must say, during this era was by and large pretty terrible and just repeated whatever the government uh, told them. So the government would announce the arrest of this dangerous wobbly and the papers would headline it and in one case put his picture on the front page. Uh, meanwhile, he was sending all these reports to the Justice Department. So I love working with material like that. It's like Donnie Brasco, the FBI agent who almost became a made man in the, the mob. <laughs> That's right. That's Amazing. right. And Except this was a guy who clearly loved violence. For example, in Pittsburgh in 1919, there was a streetcar driver's strike. And the local streetcar company imported strike breakers who knew how to drive streetcars from Philadelphia and New York because the Pittsburgh streetcar drivers were on strike. Well, the government obviously wanted there to be violence which they could blame on the radicals. So Wendell is reporting jubilantly to his Bureau of Investigation handlers about how he and a fellow Wobbly uh, broke into a streetcar that was being driven by a strikebreaker and beat the strikebreaker unconscious. And he's telling all this to the Justice Department, which obviously asked him to do this stuff. So it's really incredible. It is incredible. Okay, just give us, this is an interesting story, so I'll throw this in there before I forget. There was a, a strike of the Boston Police Department at one point, and regular citizens, including Harvard students, including maybe even the whole football team, volunteered to fill in. Just tell us about that really quick. It's just a wild yeah. story. Well, 1919 saw the largest strike wave in American history. By the end of the year, roughly one in five American workers had been on strike at some point during the year. The, there were a couple of reasons for this. One was that during that year, some four million American soldiers were demobilized from the military and they came home to a country in which there weren't jobs for them because the factories that had been making 
planes and ships and tanks and guns and artillery shells during the war had shut down. Uh, plus, there had been a tremendous amount of inflation during the war, and wages had not caught up with it. Now, the police, depart police departments, of course, had traditionally been used and occasionally still are used to suppress strikes. Uh, so it was a shocking thing to the country when the Boston Police Department, or about three quarters of it, went on strike. Um, the idea of being a strike breaker was often something that was lionized in the conservative press as being something noble to you know, counter these nasty ruffians on the left who are going on strike. Uh, and the president and provost of Harvard urged Harvard students to volunteer for these sort of volunteer civilian militia that took to the street. The football coach said, you know, suppressing this strike is much more important than playing football. Get out there, boys. And the president and the dean actually went around town touring to inspect their students filling in for the striking police officers. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to stop when I saw that story. It's just yeah. amazing. In general, I was um, shocked by the amount of civilian participation in the violence that was happening. Uh, things like the American Legion and, and the other organizations. Can you comment on that? Where did these people come from? Was it just this caught in this wave? They had to fight something because of World War One going or the War Ten Wars going on. Why in the world did America become this this violent mob craziness? Well, unfortunately, we have a long tradition of vigilante violence in this country, and we saw the most spectacular recent expression of it on January 6th, uh, 2021, you know, with a mob invading the United States Capitol. I think it goes back to frontier days when, you know, the, the West was fairly thinly populated by, by white settlers and there were vigilante-like sheriff's posses who took the place of uh, ordinary law enforcement. It goes back to the days of slavery in the American South, where there were local vigilante groups that uh, chased down runaway slaves. And that element of things has always been there in American history. The unusual thing to me about the 1917 to 21 period is that for the first part of that time, it was actually encouraged by the government. 1917 saw the formation of something called the American Protective League, which was a civilian vigilante force chartered by the Justice Department. And it rapidly uh, acquired some 250,000 members who were almost entirely men over draft age, but who still wanted to feel they were somehow or other defending their country in its hour of need. Uh, they got to wear little uh, oval uh, silver or gold badges, like a police officer or firefighter that said American Protective League, and then it had their rank, you know, captain, lieutenant, operative, commander, whatever. And then on the inside, it said, you know, auxiliary to the U.S. Department of Justice. They went around performing citizens' arrests and sometimes roughing up young men who couldn't produce a draft card. And they would hold them in custody in a police station or a warehouse or some commandeered space 
for, uh, you know, sometimes a matter of several days until their families could find, they could communicate with their families and their families could find the draft card at home. A very small percentage of them, something like 1%, it was estimated, actually were evading the draft. Uh, the others, it was just a chance for these vigilante types to throw their weight around and show that they had the ability to arrest people. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Take a step back here from a talk about Wilson. Keith and I were talking about this before we started recording. It is interesting that he became president. You know, I don't think anyone would have pegged him for that when he was the president of Princeton. Um, didn't have very much political experience at all. I think he had about a year as governor in New Jersey. Um, tell us about his, his rise to the presidency. And, and also, I'm curious, he was a scholar before this. He wrote about a dozen books, papers. I haven't read much of his work at all. What's your assessment of his this his scholarship and his research? Um, Wilson was a peculiar guy, a very paradoxical man. Uh, I'm very critical of him in the book, but I should say he's not somebody towards whom one feels 100% loathing, like one or two more recent presidents I could mention. Uh, he was complicated. When he was elected, he was seen as a progressive, sort of the last president of the progressive era, and on issues like regulation of business, uh, child labor, the income tax, you know, he took the progressive side on that issue. He was a scholar. He'd written a dozen, uh, a dozen or so books. Uh, his view of American history was a pretty jaundiced one, I think, because um, he took a startlingly benign view of slavery. He had grown up in the South. He was the first Southerner elected to the presidency since the Civil War. Although he was governor of New Jersey, uh, you know, he'd grown up in Georgia and Virginia and had very much had a, a white Southerner outlook on politics. Uh, didn't really regard black people as, as deserving full citizenship in any way. Uh, and that's reflected in his writing about American history. And as I say, took a very benign view of slavery. Um, and there was an idealistic side to him. I think his plan for the League of Nations uh, was you know, something noble in intention. One certainly can't deny that it's better for countries to sit around a table and hash out their differences than to go to war with each other. In actual fact, I don't think it was very practical. And I think, you know, a League of Nations with the United States at its center wouldn't have done any better in stopping war than the United Nations has done since 1945. But, you know, you have to appreciate there's a certain idealism in his commitment to that. At the same time, he presided, as I've said, over the, you know, the worst assault on civil liberties that this country uh, has seen since the days of Reconstruction. Uh, and he seemed to have no concern about this at all. He pushed for a censorship provision in the Espionage Act, the, the law that uh, under which most of this repression took place. Um, he at least one occasion called for the censorship of a newspaper that he objected to. He knew that newspapers and magazines were being shut down by his chief censor, the postmaster general, made no objection to it. He knew that people were being sent to jail for what they had uh, written or said. You know, in 
2016, Donald Trump's supporters famously chanted, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Well, in 1918, Woodrow Wilson's administration did lock up one of his former opponents in the presidential race, Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party leader, who had gained 6% of the popular vote for the presidency in 1912. Yeah, I want to come back to him, too, in his, his meeting in the White House with another president later, but um, make sure I don't forget that. Um, his, his rise to power, though, zoom back in on that. I mean, briefly, as governor of New Jersey, did he have political ambitions when he was at Princeton that you could see? I mean, how did that actually work? Because it's, it's a little different than it would have worked today. Yeah, it's sort of hard to imagine a university president catapulting to the presidency of the United States two years later uh, uh, today. Uh, but Woodrow Wilson uh, was certainly somebody who built up Princeton University enormously during his uh, decade or so uh, as, as its president. Then he became governor of New Jersey uh, and from there to the presidency. Uh, how he got there, I don't know, it's it's complicated. I think basically there was a dearth of other good candidates for the Democrats. And it was also an age where you didn't really have to build a national media presence in the way that you do today. You know, there was no television, no radio. Um, it was an age where if you had the right political bosses on your side, uh, you know, you could advance. Um, it's a complicated story, but I, I would I would actually say the the dearth of other candidates among the Democrats who had wide appeal and the right connections was one of the reasons why he, he became their candidate in 1912. At that time, prior to the First World War, in universities, obviously it's a different environment. Um, college attainment was much lower as a percentage of the population than it is today, and universities probably had a slightly different mission in many ways. But was freedom of speech considered principal to what was you know the university's mission and what they did? Is there any indication of what Wilson thought about that? I think there was a different feeling than there is today. One thing I've got, I think you have to give the United States credit for is that today, I think there is a much greater appreciation for the First Amendment than there was 100 years ago. Uh, the idea that freedom of speech has to be protected and thrive. Uh, in those days, universities were not the kind of hotbeds of controversy and dispute that they are uh, today. It was professors lecturing to students, instructing students, and there were much smaller, uh, you know, many, many fewer people in universities. Uh, it wasn't the same kind of atmosphere of, of, that, it, that it is today where there is a high value on free speech. And when there's all sorts of arguments about free speech, you know, does free speech include the right to insult people? Um, what should be the limits and so forth? I, I'm not familiar with anything like that, you know, in Wilson's time at Princeton, 1910, 1912. Although in truth, it was not a part of his life that I spent much time investigating for this book. Interesting. 
It, it's interesting you um, you talk about a case that presents to the Supreme Court, and initially, uh, all the um, all the uh, Supreme Court judges find against freedom of speech. But then it's um, a couple of of more liberal judges or later liberal judges who finally lay the seeds of that. Uh, could you comment on that and and say do you, is that the root of some of our interest in it and belief in it now? I think it is. Um... It was a, a fascinating pair of cases in uh, the law that was used to uh, suppress freedom of speech during this period and basically to send a lot of those thousand people I mentioned to, to jail for what they wrote or said was the Espionage Act, which was passed some weeks after the U.S. entered the war in 1917 and in amended form is still with us. Uh, and uh, there was a test case that came before the Supreme Court uh, some two years after that, in early 1919, the Schenck case, which involved a couple of people, Socialist Party activists in Philadelphia, who in the early days of U.S. entry into the war had distributed leaflets arguing against the draft, which they actually mailed to people who were eligible for the draft, whose addresses they had. That case came before the Supreme Court nearly two years later, and lawyers hoped this would be a test case that would find the Espionage Act unconstitutional. <clears throat> to their dismay, the court not only upheld the act unanimously, but the decision was written by a justice in whom they had placed a lot of their hopes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. And it was in that decision that he made his famous statement, which goes something like this, you know, free speech is one thing, but it doesn't allow you to shout fire in a crowded theater, which is a ridiculous analogy to make because uh, speaking out against the idea that there should be compulsory conscription has nothing to do with, you know, causing a panic by shouting fire when there isn't one. Uh, so the lawyers for these, these folks were extremely disappointed. Some months later, in late 1919, another case came before the court, the Abrams case, also involving the distribution of leaflets. Leaflets, both in English and Yiddish, which had been tossed out the window of a clothing factory in New York uh, and landed on the street below. This time, over the course of that summer, Oliver Wendell Holmes changed his mind. And there's something moving about seeing an important person in a position of power who is humanly large enough to change his mind. Yeah. Uh, he announced to the rest of the court, I'm going to dissent from this decision. I'm not going to uphold the Espionage Act this time. I've changed my mind. His fellow justices were so alarmed by this that three of them, most unusually, came to see him at his home to try to argue against this. And they said, look, you were a soldier in the Civil War. In fact, they talked to Holmes in his study and his Civil War sword was on the wall above them as they were speaking. Uh, you have to stick by your country and its hour of need and so forth. We know what they said because Holmes's law clerk was listening in from the next door, from the next room through a half open door. Holmes said, no, I'm going to descend. 
and uh, Justice Brandeis, Louis Brandeis, joined him in that dissent. Supreme Court dissents don't make law, but one of Holmes's biographers says that their dissenting opinion, which talks about the importance of the free marketplace of ideas, is the most frequently cited um, defense of free speech uh, and legal decisions in the Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, and I do think that for all its faults, you know, the Supreme Court and other courts today and the United States generally has a greater appreciation for the First Amendment that existed 100 years ago. We only have so much time and I want to spend more time on the First World War, First World War, but we, we're going to run out of time just to give everybody a sense and a good reminder of the senselessness of of this war. Tell us about the last moments. We're talking about the armistice. Armistice has been negotiated. It's been set for 11 a.m. What happens in the last, particularly six hours? And we'll talk about the, the unit of black Americans who were serving too. Yeah. Well, here's what happened. This war as a whole was extremely senseless. You know, more than 9 million soldiers and depending on how you count them, possibly an even greater number of civilians were killed and the seeds were sown for the Second World War. It's impossible to imagine the Second World War without the first. And this senseless war came to an end in a particularly senseless way. The Germans had asked for an armistice. The Allies had imposed quite harsh terms on them, which they agreed to. Uh, the German delegates meeting with the Allies signed the armistice around 5 a.m on November 11th, 1918, you know, the 11th day of the 11th month, <clears throat> uh, the armistice was to take effect at the 11th hour, 11 a.m. that day. But in the, in the moment the armistice was signed, 5 a.m., news of it was radioed and telegraphed up and down the front line on both sides. So everybody knew the whole war is coming to an end at 11 a.m. But the Allied armies were all under orders that they were to keep fighting, keep shelling the enemy, keep trying to advance and gain ground up until the fighting stopped at 11 a.m. And thousands of men were needlessly uh, killed and wounded uh, in those last six hours of the war. One of the American units that suffered the most was the 92nd Division, which was an all-Black unit, uh, all of whose senior officers were white, uh, and they were one of these units that were fighting and dying up to the very last minute, unnecessarily, because the, the peace agreement had been signed six hours before. Absolute, perfect insanity. Yeah, if my numbers are correct, I th more people were lost that morning than we've lost in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. I mean, it's just incredible, senseless loss. That again, more people were lost in those six hours than were lost during the entire day of D-Day, 1944, which we think of as a major battle. Hmm. Amazing. So, so um, reading the book, I mean, one of the things that made this so hard was you know, we have, I have very clearly defined um, right and wrong in my mind. I think a lot of people do by 
the 21st century standards. But it seems like this, the people who are doing the wrong always get the last laugh. And it seems like there's never repercussions until towards the end, we start to see things turn around. Um, beyond this, and you touch on it in the aftermath book, what was there um, a way, an attempt to try to overturn some of that, to, to, um, to uh, try to give something back to the, for instance, the conscientious objectors who really had had war crimes committed against them. Was there any effort to make some of that uh, better or did they just sort of say, okay, it's over, let's not think about it anymore. Let's go on to our um, madcap roaring twenties. Well, unfortunately the story I tell in American Midnight doesn't have a very happy ending. I wish I could say that all the politicians who presided over this repressive era repented of their sins and vowed nothing like it would happen again. Didn't quite happen that way. Uh, when Wilson left office, he was succeeded by Warren Harding, uh, not one of our greatest presidents. But one thing you have to give Harding credit for was he immediately stopped the censorship, which had been going on under Wilson right up to the last minute. Harding had been a newspaper publisher before going into politics and didn't think the government had any business, you know, shutting down newspapers and magazines. He stopped that. And he gradually began letting the remaining political prisoners, of whom there were several hundred, out of jail. Uh, and in a way, as a sort of curious little happy ending is that the, the most prominent of those political prisoners was Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party leader, who'd been sent to jail in 1918 for opposing the war, who was still in jail in November 1920, two years after the war ended, and received more than 900,000 votes on the Socialist Party ticket for president when he was in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Uh, Harding finally let him out of jail on Christmas Day of that year, and invited Debs to come see him in Washington on his way home. And Debs did so, and they chatted for half an hour. Uh, and Harding later told a friend off the record, you know, Debs was completely right about that war. And as Debs left Harding's office, he told reporters, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've actually gotten here. <laughs> so that is something of a happy ending moment. But it was not a happy ending in other ways. There were many political prisoners who were still in jail. The last of them didn't get released until after Harding's death in 1924. The Socialist Party was crushed. Um, its press, which had a pre-war circulation of some two million readers, was essentially put out of business. The labor movement, even the most conservative part of the labor movement, the American Federation of Labor, lost a million members during this period. It was a very nasty, repressive time that, in a sense, the United States didn't really recover from until Franklin D. Roosevelt came in in the 1930s. And, and we, don't, we don't have time to talk about uh, Lewis Post, or there are a lot of people we, we can't talk about. Um, but... Um, there were fortunately people who stood up and created enough of a stir that the the sort of heirs to this um, people, the the um, the people who could have been president, somehow got blocked from it. 
Do you think if it hadn't been for people like Post, we might have gotten a, a Wood or someone like that president? Could this have just kept going on, this kind of repression? Well, you know, here's the thing that really sort of took the wind out of its sails. Uh, the Woodrow Wilson's last attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, was very ambitious, uh, aiming for the presidency in 1920, was up until the last moment, the leading candidate for the Democratic Party nomination for president. He made the mistake, uh, and he was running as a law and order candidate. I'm going to be tough with these nasty radicals. I'm going to deport them by the tens of thousands. He made the mistake of believing his own propaganda. And he widely and repeatedly predicted that on May Day, the International Workers' Holiday, 1920, there would be a communist uprising throughout the United States. Uh, cities called in extra police. New York City called in all three shifts of its police force, put one on the street, had the other two standing by in station houses. J.P. Morgan hired extra guards all over the country. They posted extra security people at bus stations and railway stations and ferry terminals. The day dawned and nothing happened. And that not only took the wind out of Palmer's campaign for presidency, but started to take the wind out of the hysteria of this period generally. I, I went to Harvard undergrad and I got a kick out of the story that somebody had reported people marching behind a red flag and it turned out to be a Harvard Crimson banner. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, Adam, there is so much more I want to talk about. I want to talk about how black soldiers were treated when they came back, the lynchings. Uh, unfortunately, I want to talk about uh, some more about what we call the Spanish flu today, but probably that's not, that's not even where it came from. But um, on and on. I want to spend more time in Eugene Debs as well. Um, but of course, that's what your book is for. So I think I recall you mentioning Ken Burns somewhere in the beginning, and how nice it would be if he would you know, consider a topic like this. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no Ken Burns documentary about these periods. I'm a great admirer of Burns as a filmmaker, but, you know, he usually has to get corporate backing for the, the films that he does. Mm -hmm. And highlighting a period of repression against the, the left is not usually the sort of thing that it's easy to get, you know, big backing for a film on. That's a good point. If you or anyone else wants to do a film about this period, I would love to turn over my notes to them and, and work with them. I think well, whoever's listening out there that has connections, um, great material so, there. please uh, consider it because sometimes I'm afraid that even among my own friends and peers, there's just less and less book reading going on today, no matter what the topic. So Netflix cuts in, <laughs> Disney app, everything else. Um, I'd like to see this story get broader, more broader exposure. So, I'm curious how you think about that now. Um, you know, people like Keith and I and our listeners will pick up the book, but some other people won't. How do you think about other forms of media, video, podcasts? Are there other ways that can resonate with people? I mean, you're still a professor today. Um, what, what do you think about that? Is this... Well this, to still, me, this is very important. Uh, yeah, I'm still attached to this very archaic practice of, of uh, book reading and actually reading books on paper and not on the screen and not on my phone and uh, not even audiobooks, although more power to people who like to do that. 
Uh, American Midnight has sold a decent number of copies, uh, 36,000 so far. I just heard from my publisher this morning. That's so awesome. there are people who, who read books and who I think will continue to do so. Um, and the statistics from the publishing industry show that, you know, book sales continue. The pandemic was actually quite good for books. The book sales went up during that period. Okay. What the statistics don't tell you is, you know, how many of the books that people are reading are good books uh, <laughs> and how much uh, are total fluff and, and nonsense. Although, to be truthful, I you, you mean you're not reading Prince Harry's uh, book yeah. right now? Yeah, yeah. I haven't gone to Prince Harry's memoirs <laughs> yet, and I have a feeling he's probably outselling American Midnight in books. <laughs> it's a, it's close, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, we're here at the closing minutes. Um, tell our listeners where they can find more about you, your work, and, and more and more about this period. Um, point us in some directions. Well, uh, I teach at the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley. And if you go to that uh, website and click on the page for me, uh, you'll find links to the 11 books I've written and also links to a number of recent articles uh, I've done. Uh, and I believe that the book does have a future. There are still people writing. There are still people reading uh, in sizable numbers, both here and abroad. Uh, many of my books have been uh, translated into other languages. Uh, it's always great fun to you know, read your own words in a language that you don't know one word of. Uh, but it inspires me to think that, you know, good stories, good ideas can travel. And of course, they can be told in other forms as well. You know, films, websites. One of my books was, was uh, partly turned into a website by the BBC, and I worked with them on this, and it was a fascinating process. But I still think that the book itself is a wonderful medium and that it has a future. I agree, but it's very encouraging to hear you say that. And um, my old professors back in college would be very happy because um, I first encountered you being assigned some of your books in, in class nearly like oh, 20 terrific. years ago. So well, <laughs> it's been so to exciting your professors to professors for having such good taste. They, they did, they did. But um, but yeah, we'll, we'll put links up to all of that so people can uh, dig in in greater depth as we always do. And Adam, really, thank you for carving out some time and joining us. And thank you for bringing this book into the world. I really enjoyed well, it, and I'm really glad it's, it's selling as well as it is. It's well, very encouraging. Well, thank you both, uh, Colin and Keith. It was a real pleasure talking to you. And to everybody out there, wherever, whenever you're listening, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.